Hey, my name is Andy Kelly. How are you doing this morning? Uh, one of the questions we asked, or we will be asking in our gathering today is, who is someone that you know is on your side? Someone that's got your back? And I really appreciate that question. If you don't know me, uh, I'm the pastor at Water's Edge Church. And if you've heard my story, you'll know that I grew up on the East Coast. Uh, my religious background is uh, I grew up Irish Catholic within my home, my home of my nuclear family, but I also had another family that raised me spiritually in a way that is at points Mennonite, other points fairly Pentecostal, other points uh, somewhat Baptist, but both of those, the Catholic and Protestant stream informed a lot of what I believe today, though I do need to state that somewhere in my early college and post-college days, my true religion was working hard and partying hard. I, I compartmentalized my faith and relegated it simply to a Sunday morning conversation with God and wanted to live life uh, in my own way. And one of the beauties of any lifestyle is meeting people along the way. They are sacred beings that God has created, that God loves and God longs to save and to renew. And in my life of working hard and partying hard, I have made some of the best friends that I'll ever have had. And uh, they're great. I love them. There's so much to be said about friendships that you make in good times and in bad. And, and somewhere along the way, Jesus did get hold of me again in a way that was fully transformative, a way where Jesus made sense outside of Sundays. I was forgiven. I desired to make amends. But more than that, I just recognized that God loves me for who I am and, and wants to walk with me in my every moment. So as that started to happen, I started to make my way into a church. A lot of people in my life that I partied with, a lot of people in my life that I worked with, weren't as excited. There was some confusion, some resistance, and some frustration with my crew. And understandably, I was becoming this church guy that was taking my weekends and going to Mexico to build houses and party less. And a lot of my friendships, I believe out of fear of being judged or perspectives they had about the church and church people. I remember being called a cult at one point. Started becoming antagonistic towards me or apathetic to my renewed beliefs. A lot of the people that were in the tertiary friendships, you know, you have your focused friendships and then there's the concentric circles go out and some friends that were more acquaintances spoke to me less, reached out to me less. And I remember one of my good friends reaching out to another good friend, my friend Paul, calling Randy who lives near me and be like, dude, what's up with Andy? He's he's all religious now. What's going on? And, and Randy, who does not share the same worldview as me, yet. He he stuck up for me. He stuck up for me and a lot of my friends who were becoming antagonistic. He said, hey, this is Andy. Um, he's still the same weird Andy. He's always been weird and uh, he's got faith now, but he's, st he's still our friend. And in many ways, this is Andy. He's still the same Andy, though he is different. And it probably was as eloquent as I sounded right there. But 
the beauty of that is my friend Randy, he stuck up for me. He had my back. Even if we believed two different things, he, he went out on a limb for me and said, hey, this is our boy. He's still our friend. And this is what it means to have friends, to create space for others, even if they have different opinions now. And I just really love that point. And I, I do want to state that Randy and I have stayed together through the years. We have been boys. And a lot of our friendships, my friendships I've made in the past together, that's one of the main reasons I went into the ministry is because I had these wonderful relationships and I found Jesus and I want to introduce Jesus to others. I can't force that conversation. But I can help cultivate it. And yeah, Randy and I, Randy was actually, him and his wife, Sally, he was the first person um, that I married, uh, which is awesome. And, uh, you know, he's come to men's retreats with me. We hang, our daughters are friends. But the note I want to double down on is it's, it's wonderful when you have someone who's on your side, when you have someone who's got your back. We are beginning a new series I'm calling it one the death settles, how the Messiah journeys with the other. The reason why I'm calling it when the death settles is that it's almost midpoint between the last presidential election and next. And we're not going to be talking politics this whole series, but I think it I think it brings something to your mind's eye that during the election season, things are a bit intense socially, a little bit more anxious. And the goal of a follower of Jesus is to be non-anxious, to be loving, no matter if there's difficult conversations, to be loving in the midst of difficult circumstances. That's one of the primary goals of a follower of Jesus is to love well. Consistent with this great command is to be non-anxious, most if not all the time. What does that word mean, non-anxious? It means to be firmly rooted, undefended, calmly convicted, grace-filled, faithfully loving as a child of God and as a disciple of Jesus. This is to be non-anxious in hard times, non-anxious in hard conversations. This means to be a person other people believe has your back. Did I say that right? To be a person that other people believe, yeah, that person's got my back. Meaning, hey, Andy, whatever he believes, I know he's got my back. The church has historically been a place with people uh, with different opinions coming together with a greater commonality. It's also a place where people are carrying a lot of pain and trauma from life's difficulties, coming in looking for hope. The church is a convergence of different ideas, different backgrounds, different stories. And, and when differences and or difficult difficulties arise, the question I wanna ask in this series is how do we enter in with love? How can we put ourselves in the line for others? We've just spent the last few months, the last few months rather, in the Sermon on the Mount uh, learning to be salt and light, to be the blessed beatitude in the lives of others. We've focused on Jesus's authority, and that's one of our major themes that we talked about. 
that we need Jesus' authority in our lives to be that, to live out the Holy Spirit to curate these realities of purity and truth and encouragement, honoring, respecting, loving one another. This is kingdom living. Kingdom living. And as we move from the Sermon on the Mount into the next few chapters of Matthew, we're going to see what Jesus' authority looks like in practice, what does the kingdom look like on the street level as we see Jesus's interactions with others? We will witness how Jesus is bringing the kingdom into their lives of different people in different circumstances. And so the series layout in the next few weeks, we're going to focus on, on quite a few of these interactions in Matthew 8 and 9, not all of them, but there's some amazing encounters with different people in different circumstances. This week, we're talking about the socio-political other. Uh, we'll talk about those leaving the church. We're going to talk about kids, yours and others, the hurting and needy, the forgotten, and those in very dark places. What does it look like when Jesus encounters those? What does this kingdom look like in, in real street-level practice? And so there's somewhat two sermons today. I wanted to cover uh, Jesus' encounter with a man with leprosy as well as Jesus' encounter with a centurion. And I was going to try to mix them together, but I realized that Jesus' initial encounter with this quote-unquote leper, that's what he's been called by others, really is the prologue to this next few chapters. It, it, it brings together a principle that I think we need to focus on before we move to sermon number two, that of the centurion. So I'm going to read that right now. When Jesus, this is Matthew 8, chapter 1. When Jesus came down from the mountainside, large crowds followed him. And a man with leprosy came and knelt before him and said, Lord, if you're willing, you can make me clean. Jesus reached out his hand and touched the man. I am willing, he said, be clean. Immediately he was cleansed of his leprosy. Then Jesus said to him, see that you don't tell anyone. But go, show yourself to the priests and offer the gift Moses commanded as a testimony to him. So when it says, Jesus said, don't go tell anyone, he's talking specifically about what Jesus has done for him. There's a, a sense in which Jesus is trying to keep his ministry somewhat quiet so that he can move around uninhibited by others. But he does want the leper, or really this man with leprosy, to go tell the priest what has happened. So what is leprosy? Well, leprosy is a chronic, now curable infectious disease that causes skin lesions and nerve damage. And left untreated, it can infect the entire body, causing a, a loss of sensation. And injuries such as burns or cuts aren't even felt because you don't have your pain receptors. And this can lead to further consequences of infection with horrific, horrific realities. Paralysis, crippling of feet, hands, extreme light sensitivity, blindness, loss of eyebrows, nose disfiguration, skin ulcers, death eventually. And in that time, leprosy was so feared because it was so highly infectious that those with leprosy were labeled lepers and were not allowed to, to into walled cities. They were required to shout out unclean as they approached people. This physical disease was coupled with social rejection and forced isolation. And so this person claiming his God-given right to dignity does call out to Jesus. He says, Lord, if you're willing, you can make me clean. And Jesus touches a man who hasn't been touched since 
God knows how long. And he says, I am quilling. And, and this is the moment where the crowd shudders as Jesus touches them. But immediately he's healed. And Jesus tells him to go to the priest and offer a gift so this man would receive the official authorization to be reintegrated into society, into family life, into village life. This is not only a physical healing, this is an emotional, social healing happening here. And this prologue of this account with this man with leprosy offers so much about what it means to be human. Just like one with leprosy, we have a condition called sin, and sin is highly infectious. It infects our heart, our inner being, our thoughts, our emotions, our choices. Sin is infectious around us, that when we're in sin, it can affect the systems and social circles that we're in. And we need to heal. We need to be touched by Jesus in a way where his loving grace and the gift of faith can cleanse us through his righteousness. This cleanse us, allows us restored fellowship with God and allows us restored fellowship in a community of the Holy Spirit where Christ is ahead, that is the church. And the principle that I want to focus in on that will inform these next few weeks is the fact that Jesus initiates the healing, that Jesus touch us, he connects with us before there's any correction. The principle that'll be necessary in the series is this idea that connection happens before correction. We need to connect before we correct. Jesus connects with the leper. He touches him. There's healing in that moment of just being physically touched before there's any supernatural healing of the disease, before there's any social and relational healing for this man with leprosy. In the same way, it's God's work in our lives. There's no faith without God's initiatory love, without God's loving touch in our lives, without knowing that God loves us. There's no asking for forgiveness until we sit in light of God's love. There's no faith without God's initiatory work. God connects with us. I mean, that's what Paul talks about in Acts 17, that God reaches out to us. He longs to be with us so that we perhaps would reach out to him. It's connection before correction. Connection before correction. Connection truly means to reach out in love. Correction, I think, can mean many things. Correction can mean empathy existing in the relationship. Correction can mean honesty about what's going on, experiences. Correction can be a critique. Correction can be a rebuke, but it has to be rooted in love. Correction may mean that you find yourself apologizing. But correction ultimately is about healing, healing of the relationship, healing of our bodies, healing of our thoughts, of our feelings, emotional healing. When we experience difficulties or differences, we, we often don't know what needs to be corrected because we aren't connected. 
Sometimes when we experience difficult situations and a lot of times difficult conversations, we go to our brain's initial sympathetic nervous system where we enter into a fight or flight mode. If we experience difficulty with somebody else, we, we get into a fight or flight mode and we're operating out of a portion of our brain that doesn't deeply connect with ourselves or others. We treat others as if they're a bear ready to eat us rather than the person that they are. And so we need to first breathe and connect with God so that we have the necessary resources to move forward and experience healing with a relationship with ourselves and others. We need to take a moment and just connect with somebody to recognize, oh, this is somebody that I love. They're not a bear. And, and even name that with them when difficulties arise so that we can have the resources to find healing, to find a healing way forward. And so as I speak of healing, and I talk about this situation, this principle of connection before correction, I just felt really stirred in my spirit just to take time and pray. Who's somebody in your life that needs physical or emotional, relational, spiritual healing? I didn't feel right bypassing this section and going into the next section about what it means to connect with a socio-political other until we just take a moment and be like, whoa, Jesus did this amazing miracle for somebody who's hurting, somebody who's been socially banished, somebody who has physical ailments. And so who's somebody in life that we just can pray for, create space to pray for it. And maybe you haven't done that before and I wanted to just provide a, a certain prayer that you could pray. It's the Lord's Prayer where you fill in the blanks. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come in someone's life. Your will be done in this person's life. So who's somebody you can pray for? And take a few minutes to pray for that person. Someone who's experiencing difficulty. Lord, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come in all my boy's life, in Paul's life, in Mike's life, in Derek's life, in Randy's life. Your will be done in their lives, in the lives of Ray, in the lives of Hannah and that, on earth that is in heaven. Lord, give Matt today our daily bread and forgive Matt or his or her debts. As Matt would forgive his or her debtors and lead all of us, not temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Amen. To think, you know, when you drive a conversation, you might miss the divine invitation. So before I wanted to move forward, I just want to take a moment to pray for those in our lives who need healing. We all at some point need healing. All right, sermon number two. This is where we get into the conversation about the socio-political other. Now with the man who had leprosy, Jesus restored and renewed a member of Israel. What we see in this next account is this Jesus' kingdom spreading in the lives of, of people outside of Israel. It's God's amazing ingathering of all nations that the Lord intends to bring about. And, and this account would likely be more shocking than the previous. This account regarding this Roman centurion would cause more shock and more shudders than Jesus reaching out to this 
man with leprosy. So let's read Matthew 8, verses 5 through 13. When Jesus had entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him asking for help. Lord, he said, my servant lies at home paralyzed, suffering terribly. Jesus said to him, shall I come and heal him? The centurion replied, Lord, I do not deserve to have you come under my roof, but just say the word and my servant will be healed. For I myself am a man under authority, with soldiers under me. I tell this one go, and he goes, and that one come, and he comes. I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he was amazed and said to those following, Truly I tell you, I have not found anyone in Israel with such great faith. I say to you that many will come from the east and the west and will take their places at the feast with Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and the kingdom of heaven. But the subjects of the kingdom will actually be thrown outside in the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Difficult words. Then Jesus said to the centurion, Go and let it be done just as you believed it would. And his servant was healed at that moment. So, if you're new to faith, the New Testament context where Jesus lived almost 2,000 years ago where his ministry happened, uh, it was Jewish being occupied by the Romans. Romans conquered the Jews in 63 BC. And they simply maintained law and order over them and really taxed them into slavery. A group of 100 Roman soldiers were led by one single centurion who had risen at position because of a record of faithful service. History reveals that centurions were known for their trustworthiness, they were reliable, they were sensible, and they were trained not to back down, not to retreat without re direct orders. And so for the Jew, this Roman centurion is definitely a socio-political other. It's definitely a foreign ethnic other. And though... <clears throat> The Jews in that system were of a lower social status, particularly in the eyes of Romans. The people of Israel viewed this foreign and socio-politically divergent person, others like the Romans had joined, somewhat like a leper. They viewed Romans as unclean, infectious, disgusting, corrupt, evil, and no doubt the pain of Roman occupation and oppression fueled Israel's derision. But that pain seared any desire to connect with Rome. To most of Israel, there was no redemptive approach with this person. <clears throat> Have you ever felt that way about someone else? You ever felt that there's no redemptive approach? This person is not worth connecting with. Why bother? See, the, the daring statement is that Israel viewed this Roman centurion the same way they viewed a leper. An even more daring statement is, we tend to view our socio-political others, those people who are in other parties or other party tickets, as lepers. People who should be banished. People who are unclean corrupted, infectious, disgusting. Let's just talk about it. Let's, let's talk about talking about politics. Since the last few elections, political issues have created relational issues. 
instead of seeing one another, we, we motivated a lot by our technocratic, non-objective, fear-mongering media resources have created narratives about the other side, whether that's conservative or progressive liberal or some form of moderate. And in biblical terms like justice, freedom, equality, restoration, and more seem to be co-opted by party lines and lost sight of humanity's desperate need for justice, freedom, equality, restoration, and much more. Now, my goal for you when I speak is for you not to know how I vote. While at the same time, and, and yeah, imperfectly, communicate the need for biblical freedom, biblical justice, biblical equality, biblical restoration, etc. This means I try not to ignore social issues. Sometimes I dismiss them because I'm not aware of them. I make mistakes, but the goal in this space is to communicate a kingdom mindset to seek the kingdom and righteousness over a nationalistic mindset that has infected a lot of churches. Therefore, I'm not going to submit the word I have to you almost every Sunday morning to a lesser political ideal. My goal is kingdom over nation and therefore kingdom in our nation. That said, as a pastor, I have a lot of friends, family members, mentors, all who love Jesus and are faithful to Jesus who fall along different sociopolitical lines. These are imperfect people who effort to love Jesus and love others really well. And I trust their biblical conviction. I very much appreciate hearing their political convictions. Conversely, it can be frustrating when you hear people bring up stuff that they've never talked about every four years. It's like, okay, it's now is the time where I want to talk about Abortion, or racial justice, or education, marriage, climate control, freedom of speech. I just appreciate more those who are seeking God's kingdom in the everyday. I want to be a voice for those who are experiencing injustice every day. <coughs> to be clear, I don't believe there's a fully evil side of the political platform and therefore completely righteous side. The only way to be truly righteous is to pursue the one who is fully righteous. This is Jesus continuously in every facet of our lives. That said, again, I do want to highlight something seriously amazing about this passage. When Jesus entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him asking for help. Lord, he said, my servant lies at home paralyzed, suffering terribly. This person who's been categorized as evil among the eyes of, the, of Israel has a care for his unknown servant, and that servant could be Roman, it could be Jewish, or some ethnic background altogether, represents an unusual compassion as well as a stellar faith. This servant possessed no legal rights and were often viewed as property, but that's not how the centurion views in this centurion cross ethnic lines, religious lines, social stigma to meet with this rabbi teacher to help the servant that he seems to love. His love for his servant drove his conviction. There's a huge point here that needs to be said is that there are people on the quote other side who care about other people or who care about people in general and are seeking to do right by them. 
There are people on the other side who care about people and seeking to do right by them. Though no party is perfect, there are people on both sides of the party that are trying to do right by others. Trying to do right by others. And I think it's helpful when we think through different divisions in our world, not just political visions, but different visions. I mean, I talked earlier about being raised Catholic as a kid, and now I'm part of the Protestant stream, one that highlights scripture, proclamation of faith, believers in a, are believing in a believer's baptisms, one that communicates the priesthood of all believers, that believes in the, the work of the Holy Spirit. And I love being a part of the Protestant stream, but I have a high value and respect for my Catholic heritage. I believe it's God's groundwork that he did in my life through my Catholic roots, years of Sunday school and amazing teachers serving as an altar boy under an amazing priest who finished the race well, volunteering even at college in my party days at this domestic abuse center on Tuesday nights. That somehow all these things anchored me, these Catholic realities anchored me in the love, honor, and sacred realities of God's Holy Spirit, who then did call me home later at in life. I have a high value and respect and love for our Catholic brothers and sisters who are seeking to honor and love God. I have a value for our Orthodox sisters, and don't forget Messianic Jews, or don't forget all the other Protestant denominations. There are people who are on the quote-unquote other side that are seeking to do right by others, to love others well. So with that in mind, let's ask and, and quickly answer the question, how do we reconnect with the socio-political other in order to love them? If connection comes before correction, if connection comes before correction, correction saying, hey, you need to wear this mask or not wear this mask. You need to care about racial justice. No, you need to move on. You need to open the borders. No, you need to close them. Climate control is the issue. No, it's not. Police control is the issue. No, it's not. Human rights, gender equality, wealth, income equality. This is an issue. Education. No, it's fine. Spending, taxes, healthcare, wealthcare, all these things. If connection comes before correction, i.e. telling others what they should believe, or at least giving them opportunities to hear your perspective, the question I'm asking is how do we reconnect with the socio-political other in order to love them? How do you and I reconnect with the socio-political other in order to love them? And I want to put reconnect because an unfortunate reality in the churches is that people have cut others off because of their political beliefs. People have left the church because of political and social values, believing there's no redemptive approach. It's like, man, it's not, it's not worth me talking to that person. There's no redemptive approach for it. It's like, really? No redemptive approach for it? Your God is that small? My God is not. We need to reconnect with others in order to love them. So what does that look like? I think we can learn a lot about this centurion, this person of stellar faith. And I also want you to consider that you may just be in the right spot. You may be in the right church if there are people with differing views in your church because that's an opportunity to learn and an opportunity to grow. I heard you're doing something right if you exist within a, a social atmosphere that contains differing views within the room. 
So how do we reconnect the social political other? The first point is we need to stay humble and don't grumble. Matthew 8, 9 through 10. If the leper had the dignity to call out, the centurion had the humility not to legally command Jesus to come in his home. He had the legal right to force Jesus into his home. But instead, he was humble. I mean, look at the conversation. Jesus said, shall I come and heal him? The centurion replied, Lord, I do not deserve to have you even come under my roof. This is somewhat of a way higher social status speaking to an everyday peasant rabbi. But just say the word and my servant will be healed. For I myself a man under authority with soldiers under me. I tell this one, go, and he goes, and that one, come, and he comes. And I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. We cannot bypass the amazing statement of faith here. The centurion's making clear what Jesus wants to make clear. The centurion's making clear what Matthew wants to make clear about Jesus. That Jesus is the one who has authority over all things. In the same way that the centurion has authority over a small group of soldiers in Capernaum and likely greater Galilee, this Jesus has authority over all things. So what does it have to do with this conversation about socio-political others? Well, God's plan A was Jesus, and his God's plan A through the Holy Spirit is others. And with humility and faith, we should be able to hear from others, hear from others what God may want to save us without our pre-programmed cable news media loading our mind with what we think they're about. This means being humble and recognizing that God wants to speak through others. God wants to speak through others on the other socio-political side. I've heard that humility means, humility is not about thinking less about ourselves, but rather thinking about ourselves less. And I think it's a good start, but I think true humility is, humility is not thinking less about yourself, but rather thinking about others more, being curious, hearing them out, and not grumbling. See what God may want to say to you through that person. And that leads us to our, our second note. How do you and I reconnect with the socio-political other in order to love them well, in order to receive healing? Well, we need to learn each other's stories instead of just forcing them into a certain category, i.e. certain party. We need to learn each other's story instead of forcing them into a category instead of categorizing them into a certain party. When Jesus heard this, he was amazed and said to those following him, truly, I tell you, I have not found anyone in Israel with such great faith. I say to you, many will come from the east and the west and will take their place at the feast with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the subjects of the kingdom will be thrown outside in darkness where they'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. First thing I just want to note is Jesus is amazed by this person's faith. God loves all of us, but I sure do want to amaze Jesus. Isn't that awesome? By his actions? Oh, I love that. There's a lot I can say about there, but I just want to sit with that. What's also worthy to note is that Jesus is commending this outsider as having more faith than any insider. And the point is, some of the most faithful people we know have different sociopolitical views. I feel like I've made that clear, but I want to make that really, really clear. Our goal then is to hear the stories, hear their stories, in order to deconstruct the myths that we have created about them. Oh, that person is a Republican, and therefore this. That person is a Democrat, therefore this is who they are. It's like, no, we need to deconstruct, we need to hear 
their stories in order to hear why they believe what they believe. Scott Gornto describes in his book, The Story We Tell Ourselves, that we write stories in our heads. And we're the screenwriter, we're the director, and we're the star, we're the star, we're the star of our own major motion picture. And we tend to cast ourselves as a hero. And heroes need villains. They need a foil in order to live out our stories. And we start believing that others are the villains. They they have their just desserts coming their way, whether it's that person who's competitive that we're competing with, whether it's our ex whether it's a parent that's controlling, whether it's a person along those socio-political lines, they're evil, and therefore that person's corrupt. And this idea of creating stories about others as we create stories about ourselves creates a lot of anxiety in us for several reasons. A lot of times that people don't get their just desserts that we think they should receive. They have these labels, this category as a villain, and they're doing just fine. That creates anxiety in us. Our anxiety increases because we have to mentally maintain these stories while it costs the other person nothing. Our anxiety increases because our body is thrown into shock when they are not as bad as we make them out to be. When there's something beautiful about that person, our anxiety gets thrown into shock. and I'm sorry, our body gets thrown into anxiety when we realize, and you can't miss this that we find out that we're more like them than we thought. We wanna hear each other's stories so that we can understand people's passions, understand why they believe what they believe. When you hear people's stories, it will give you insight, insight that you likely did not have. You'll hear that people grew up poor and they had to make it on their own. You'll hear that people grew up poor and they received assistance that gave them a chance. You hear people that have a descendant of someone who maybe was wrongfully convicted. You also hear people who grew up as a third generation cop. You hear people who was a small business owner. You hear people who work in a union. You hear people who have experienced different forms of discrimination, whether it is race, whether it's gender or beliefs. You hear people who've been displaced because of their beliefs or displaced because of crime or displaced because of horrific incidents. And you hear of other people who displace themselves to go experience what other people experience. Our, our lives are multifaceted to say the least. And what I wanna make clear is two people can arrive at the same conclusion, i.e. vote for a certain person for different reasons. That person simply just isn't racist. That person simply just isn't communist. As Henry Nouwen noted in his seminal work, The Wounded Healer, the mystery of any one person is way too immense or profound to be explained by any other person. So what can we do? We can be humble and listen to their stories and not categorize them. Last point. We need to enter into potential conflict with the goal of healing of the relationship and maybe not having to be right. We, need, we do need to enter into potential conflict. Conflict is a necessary and healthy aspect of our discipleship. But a lot of times, the ways that we enter into conflict, the goals that we have in conflict, really inform our spiritual maturity. If we're going in just to be right, 
going in ready to lose a relationship, then we are unhealthy, to say the least. I mean, in Matthew 8.13, in the shock and awe of those who surround the conversation, Jesus says some very conflicting words about who's truly in and who's out. What does it mean to have faith? And those who don't. And then the end result, hopefully, is healing, that everybody would have this faith. And the end result is healing of the servant. That Jesus said to the centurion, go, let it be done, just as you believed it would. And his servant was healed at that moment. We need to enter into potential conflict with the goal of healing, healing of the relationships, and not maybe having to be right. Perhaps the quote-unquote right thing for Jesus to say to the centurion, especially in the eyes of those who are looking at his disciples and other people of Israel who experience oppression in this oppressive system, perhaps Jesus' words, would, the right words for Jesus was, no, I can't help you. Problem is you're part of a tyrannical dictatorship that is oppressing God's people. Imagine if Jesus said that. No, you're part of a system. You're part of a, a political party that's corrupt. And that political party, like all political parties, has its corruptness. But that's not Jesus' kingdom goal. The goal of the kingdom is healing of both the oppressed and the oppressor. To give opportunities for all of us to turn to Jesus. The truth is, and the truth of the kingdom is that we all participate in systems that are perfect. We all contribute as sinners with chronic self-interest. And we need the healing that only Jesus can bring. So how do we experience healing? How do we experience healing in our relationships? We experience healing by recognizing God says, I love you. And we experience healing when we, in our relationships, communicate connection. Hey, I love you. We experience healing through humility of God, that God was humble and went to a cross. We experience healing in relationships when we're humble and say, I don't know anything. We experience healing when we recognize that God knows our story and wants to heal our story. We also experience healing in relationships when we seek to hear other people's stories and what they've been through. We experience healing when we recognize God's desire to heal us. To heal us first before we make the right steps that he wants to heal us in his love to free us from shame. And I believe we experience healing in relationships when we seek to love others, hear their story, and have the relationship healed before we try to convince them of what we believe is right. Does that make sense? That we connect with others, hear them out, and maybe by chance, ask them, would they be open to hearing what we believe? That question is important, but it comes through connection before any type of correction, amen? So the question is, who is someone you've disagreed with now in the past? Let's pray for them. The same way we prayed for somebody who's newing healing, let's pray for that person that they will be grounded in God's love. That you would see that person as an image bearer and that you would pray for God's love, justice, and mercy in that relationship. You would pray for healing. In short, you're praying for God's kingdom to come and God's will be done in your relationship with that person. So let's pray for that now in the time that we have. Amen. Amen.